Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you this morning. Glad to see you back. It's nice to uh, see the sunshine. And uh, someone told me that parts of the state got nine inches of rain last week. We probably need it. Or if we don't need it yet, we will need it in about six months when we are in the middle of, you do know Texas does have four seasons, hot, hotter, hottest, cool. (laughs) That's the four seasons. We'll need it in hot and hottest. Uh, We just came out of Christmas season, and every year when it's the Christmas season, and there there is a, a thought that always comes flooding back as it relates to Scripture, and it, it's simply this, uh, when, you, when you read through what Scripture says relating to the birth of Jesus, we know there are, uh, there are uh, over a hundred prophecies relating to the Messiah, to Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. We know that they're there in the Old Testament. We, we cling to many of them. Christmas time especially, we, we highlight specific one of, ones of them, and it, it's so easy. Look, Matthew says, behold, child born of a virgin. Look, uh, Malachi, we act like it's so easy, yet we forget that when you read Matthew and Luke's account of the Gospels, you find that there are scribes, there are biblical scholars who know all of these passages and prophecies. In fact, when the Magi show up, Herod sends to the scribes and says, hey, some Magi from the east just showed up. They said the king of the Jews has been born. Where's the Bible say he's been born? And they said, oh, the Bible, they didn't miss a beat. They didn't even have to look it up. They said, oh, he's born, born in Bethlehem. They quote the scripture right out. Here's why I say that. There is, when it comes to biblical prophecy, realize that once it's been fulfilled, it's obvious. But before it's been fulfilled, we have to have a great level of humility. Because when Jesus showed up fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, There were Old Testament scholars who are more versed in the Hebrew and the Old Testament than any one of us in this room could shake a stick at. And all of them missed him. Because somewhere there was a pride that was blinded to the truth. So I say that to say, because as we come to the text today, we're not dealing with anything Christmas or the birth of Jesus. We're dealing with the second coming of Jesus. We're dealing with, in Revelation 20, what is one of the great theological debates of church history and with regard to what are the thousand-year reign of Jesus? What is it? And I just want to urge all of us that as we come to this text, we better do so not thinking, I've got it right but in humility saying, Lord, I think I've got it right, or I think I don't have a clue, but Lord, you're right, and you know what's true. So we're going to walk through the Scriptures in humility with the purpose of knowing Him, of loving Him, and following Him, not taking whatever my theory is and waving it in the face of someone else and going, look how I'm right and you're wrong. Because we don't want to miss the point 
that Jesus put it in the Scriptures and how it is supposed to transform and breathe life and impact us today. So if you will, turn with me, Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20. If you need help getting there, pick up any Bible, turn it to the back, and open it about three pages past the maps, and you will find Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, and as we come to Revelation 20, we're going to pick up in verse 1, and there's two important context things we need to remember as we read this. One, we need to remember the context of the whole book of Revelation. Revelation is not simply just a prophecy of the end times, but, it, but it's a real letter. It's a real letter that, that, that Jesus Christ uh, led the Apostle John, who's in exile on Patmos, to write to real churches, seven of them with real flesh and blood believers born again by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus, received through faith in Jesus alone, just like you and I today. Except these believers are living in a world where there is a seemingly all-powerful emperor who claims divinity for himself, and he sends his puppet false prophets out into the empire to test the people's political loyalty by, by calling all the citizens to, to, or all the residents, not all were citizens, but all the residents of the empire to come into the little tent and to, to offer the incense and to declare that Caesar is Lord. And, and if they didn't, there would be severe both economic, sometimes threat of life, repercussions that these believers are facing and Jesus is, is through John calling them to live a life that overcomes, that perseveres and does not capitulate to the pressure of the world. That's one. We need to remember the context of the book. Two, we need to remember what's come just before Revelation 20. It's Revelation 19. I'm not going to go back and read it, but Revelation 19, all of a sudden we're given this picture. Uh, we see that the fall of Babylon, chapter 17 and 18, the system of, and the political, religious, economic system of the world that's opposed to Christ and to his people. And, and the, the doom of Babylon is announced. We, we see the armies of the Antichrist and false prophet gather in mass to to wipe out the people of God, and then there is a blast of a trumpet in the skies, and, and the whole world looks and sees as Jesus comes riding on a white horse, the warrior king, faithful and true, the bridegroom who's coming to resurrect those in him who have died and to sweep up those who remain alive, his bride. They will meet him in the sky, and he has returned, and he has come down, and it says the armies of the Antichrist, the false prophet, the, the Antichrist rulers, all of those armies, it says Jesus descends and goes, and the battle's over, and the Antichrist is seized, the false prophet are seized, they're thrown into the lake of fire, and then it says this, Revelation 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss. He shut it, sealed it over him, so that Satan would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed." After these things, 
He must, or it is necessary for Satan to be released for a short time. So here's, here's what we see. We mentioned it uh, last time we were here in Revelation that, that the victory of Jesus is so complete, the Antichrist, the false prophet, boom, they're permanently placed in the lake of fire. But then John sees this, the one, the power, the one behind the Antichrist and false prophet, the, the enemy of old, Satan himself. He sees an angel, which I just think this is entertaining, by the way, because Satan is our great enemy. But it's not Jesus who binds them. Jesus sends an angel to do it because Satan is powerless before our Savior. Though he appears strong and mighty to us today, understand he, he is not the arch enemy of Jesus. There is no arch enemy of Jesus because Jesus has no rival. So he sends an angel and it says that Satan, the dragon, he, he's, he's bound He's modern day, he's, he's handcuffed, he's strapped, he's laid in the straitjacket, he's taken to the abyss. Now, now the abyss is mentioned earlier in Revelation, this is not the lake and fire, which is the permanent place prepared for the destruction of the devil and his minions and those without Christ. The abyss is this, is this current holding place for demons who have fallen described in language of a bottomless pit of darkness. It says that Satan is taken by the angel. He's bound. He's placed in the abyss. And then over this abyss, the door is shut. A seal, a royal seal that, that is there to both ensure it takes place as well as to prevent any, any escape, any tampering is placed over. And the purpose of this is that for this thousand years that is about to inaugurate that Satan would no longer be able to do what he has done on this world since the beginning, which is to deceive the nations. Scripture describes right now that over the hearts of unbelievers, there is a veil of Satan. Describes all throughout Revelation that Satan is at work deceiving the nations, the peoples of the world. It describes in culture in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that we were once all dead in our trespasses and sins and we walked in the same ways of the world which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air that Satan is using and leading culture to deceive the world. And here he's bound so that his deception will no longer take place until the thousand years are completed. Now this is what we see happen to Satan, but there's a second question here which is, well, what's this thousand years, Pastor? Now, let me give you some provisos. The goal of the sermon today is not to give you a step-by-step -step proof for what I think the thousand years are. We're going to do that. We're going to do that on Wednesday. I'll walk you through all that. I'll answer questions. We'll look more in detail at what are the various ways because throughout church history, there's essentially been three primary ways people have understood the thousand years. Two of them hold to a certain level that the thousand years here is just simply symbolic. It's not a, a literal time of Jesus' reign on the earth. The position of the early church and the position where I fall, we would use the term premillennial, is that Jesus comes back bodily to this earth prior to a millennial, a thousand-year reign where Jesus sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem on this earth and exercises 
the rule and dominion over creation, this creation, that was God's original intent. Say thousand years. Now, when we say literal, what we mean is it's, it's, it's a real literal reign. Could it, is it going to be 1,000 years to the dot second in this? Could be. May simply be. If, if there is a, an aspect of symbolism to the, the number 1,000, you have two, two numbers uh, of God in perfection, three and seven. Got any math students? You know what three and seven added together make? Ten. It's the sum of the two perfect numbers. Do you know what 1,000 is? It's 10 cubed, 10 perfected, the sum of perfection perfected. What it will be is a long literal rule of Jesus in which his perfection is brought to rule in this world. This is what the thousand years are as best I can understand and give to you. And you say, well, I want to know more, Pastor. Great. Come Wednesday, tune in via Zim, listen to it after it's recorded. We'll walk through in more detail. That says Satan is bound in this thousand years. He will not be able to deceive the nations until these thousand years, notice, are completed. We'll see that phrase repeated at least two more times. And by completed, it's a word that means their purpose is brought to an end. Now we'll come back, but I just want to I want to lay the seed now. There is this is not just well, why a thousand? There's a purpose to this time. This time that Jesus inaugurates, this millennial kingdom, there's a purpose to it. And Satan being removed, unable to deceive, is part of that purpose, but not all. Look with me. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Or your translation may read, and I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Meaning, there, I saw thrones, and on them were people that, that God had granted and given the responsibility of judgment. They didn't have judgment in and of themselves by their own power, but God gave them judgment. Now this, uh, if, if you'll go back and remember with me, Jesus told the apostles that when he came, they would sit on 12 thrones from which they would judge the tribes of Israel. We know uh, Paul speaks about us as believers sitting on thrones and judging angels. There, there are many references with regard to the end where a group of individuals, believers, are sitting on thrones and given a responsibility of judgment, not because of their power or might, but because of God's grace in giving it to them. So John says, I see these thrones I see those who were entrusted with judgment sitting on them. And he said, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. These are those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And these came to life. They were resurrected bodily and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But these will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So here's what John says. He says there's, there's more going on in this thousand years. Here's what I observe. There are thrones 
where, where people sit on them and, and justice is given, judgment is given for them to administer. Not only that, but I, I saw the souls of those who had been martyred. And we've seen this group before. If you go back to Revelation 6, there are those who came out of the tribulation who were martyred for their faith in Jesus, put to death for their faith in Jesus, for their refusal, according to Revelation 13, to take the mark of the beast, to worship the Antichrist as God. It says, I saw these martyrs for whom this world was cruel and hostile, and I watched as those martyrs were vindicated for everything they lost, even their own lives, as Jesus brought them back to life bodily, resurrected. And when they were resurrected, they weren't just resurrected back into their body, but they, they now reign with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. One, well, what is this resurrection? You notice he calls it the first resurrection. Well, Scripture is clear that part of, and, and, and really the, the, the bringing to completion of salvation is when those of us in Christ will be, will be fully perfected both internally, spirit, soul, and externally resurrected body. Scripture's clear, our salvation, which has been started at the moment that you, uh, at the mo you trust yourself to Christ, His person and work for the salvation of, uh, of yourself eternally, that at that moment, there is a work that starts. We are, we are made righteous in the eyes of God, justification, that at that moment, uh, the Holy Spirit comes, lives within us and begins working out God's salvation in us. And he who started a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, his return. And part of that completion, right now, if one of us were to die, when we die, this body, which is weak, frail, still, still, uh, still weak to the power of death, that that immaterial, that spirit part of us, our soul, will detach from our body, Jesus will take us, our soul, home to be with Him in heaven. And at that point, there is a perfection in the sense of we're in the presence of the Lord. We'll see Him. We'll behold His glory. There will be no more sin, temptation, but, but, but we're still just the immaterial part of us. Remember, God in the original creation, when He made us in His image, He made us both immaterial and material, physical. And the physical part of us is our body. And so at the return of Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet blares, Jesus descends and it says, the dead in Christ, those who have died prior to his return, they will rise from their graves. The soul will be reunited with a resurrected body. And those who are still alive, once they see the dead in Christ resurrected, they'll be caught up in the air. And all in Christ will be transformed. Paul says in Corinthians, it will be like in the twinkling of an eye. And our bodies, which are currently perishable, they, they will throw off the perishable. Jesus, in the twinkling of an eye, will remake them imperishable, perfect. In fact, John tells us in 1 John, well, what does a perfect body look like? Well, it looks like Christ's resurrected body. 
We will be given resurrected bodies just like Christ glorified bodies. This, this is the first resurrection. And notice those who experience the first resurrection says this is the first resurrection, implying there's two resurrections. But this first resurrection is, is special. Those who take part in it are blessed. They're holy. They're unique. They're set apart. They're righteous before God. The second death, which we'll see next week at judgment, eternal death, it says eternal death, the second death, it has no power over them. They don't ever experience it. Instead, they, they live as priests. They have a ministry to God and to Jesus in the holy of holies. And they reign with Christ. Those of the first resurrection, well, who are those of the first resurrection? Well, here it says simply the martyrs who had been beheaded. Now, there's some who would say that at this millennial kingdom that literally it'll only be those at this point, only those believers who were martyred out of the tribulation uh, will come to life and reign. There are some who will say, well, it's, it's not only those martyrs, but it's also all of the Jewish believers of the tribulation that will reign while the rest of the saints wait in heaven. And there's those, and this is where I would land, and I'll explain why, who, who think when you look at martyrs here, it's both literal, there's a real group of martyrs that die in the tribulation, but there's also a symbolism. Remember who's this being written to? A group of believers who are suffering under an all-powerful ruler claiming to be God, part of whose suffering is their refusal to take the mark of emperor worship. Jesus has already told some of them in the, in the letters at the beginning, you're gonna die, you're gonna face martyrdom. There is a sense in which, John sees in the vision the martyrs, but while they are literal, they are also representative of all who are in Christ, who have died to self, who have lived the witness, the life of witness, who have refused to play and bow down to the world, all of us in Christ. And I say, well, pastor, why do you think it's all? Well, it says, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. It implies there's only two not three. There's not a first resurrection and a second resurrection of the saints, and then there's two. There's a first and a second. Those in the first, they're blessed, they're holy. If you're in Christ, you're blessed and holy. If you're in Christ, Scripture's really clear. If you're in Christ, part of what God's eternal purpose is is that we live as priests. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, First Peter. And it says that those in the second resurrection, the implication is that those of the second resurrection are subject to the second death. Well, you and I in Christ, we are not subject to the second death. We're part of the first resurrection. We are resurrected, we are reunited with a perfected body at the return of Jesus, and when this thousand year inaugurates, we will reign and live with Christ on this earth in his rule. At peace in the knowledge of, though death may touch us once, the eternal death and second death will never touch. Because, and this is a little trivia fact for you, we'll look at it more next week, there is a second resurrection, bodily resurrection. Paul's clear. There's a resurrection of the righteous and there is a resurrection of the wicked. Every human being will be resurrected to a body, those in Christ to a glorified body, those not in Christ to a reanimated body in which they will stand and give account for judgment. Now that's next week, but that's what the implication is. 
here. They reign. Now look, look with me as we come here and we start to ask the question, what's all it mean? It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He doesn't escape. He can't get out. He's released. And he will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, which either means the far reaches of the earth or the nations which comprise all of the earth. Gog and Magog, which is a reference back to Ezekiel uh, chapter uh, 38 and 39. Um, when it speaks of Gog the ruler and his nation Magog who come up against the people of God. It's representative here at minimum of all of those who are opposed to Christ. It says that Satan will deceive them. He gathers them together for war. The number of those is like the, the sand of the seashore. There's this massive group of people, even in this millennium, who refuse to believe and submit to Jesus. They, they come up against, by the way, I know what I just said you'll have a question about. Don't worry, we'll get there. And the devil who, and listen, they surround the camp of the saints at the beloved city there at Jerusalem. And I love it. If the first, the first time Jesus defeats the Antichrist army with a breath, now he's going to defeat Satan's army. Fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. There's no fight. Fire falls. And it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So when the purpose of this thousand years is completed, Satan is released. The implication, let me give you the simplest view and understand we're going to dive more in depth on Wednesday where it's a little, it's a little uh, we can spend more time. But chapter 19 does not indicate that all of the people living on the earth who are against Christ are in the army of the Antichrist. It's just those in the army. Which means when Jesus returns, there's a resurrection of the saints and our resurrected bodies, but you've still got, at minimum, some people of the nations who have the mark of the beast. Now, there's a lot of questions even I don't have answers to. This is one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. And I'm not going to try to feed you some overly simplistic answer. The simple point is that when Satan is released, there are still people on this world who have seen the exalted warrior king Jesus conquer the object of their worship, the antichrist and false prophet. They have seen Jesus take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. They have watched as Jesus, in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, has brought back the lost tribes of, uh, of Israel, and, and there is one house. They see all of this, and their response when given the chance is not to worship Jesus in his peace and prosperity he will bring, but it is to side with Satan and to go into battle against Christ. Literally, there will be people who see Jesus fully exalted who still aren't convinced or repentant. Because that is the true weight of human depravity. And it says that they gather up and again, in the most anticlimactic way, Jesus wins. And it sets up the rest of the passage where we go next week for judgment. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this strange thousand years and this reign, this binding of Satan, this, this, this reign of, of Christ on this earth for a thousand years? What do we do with this? Well, it's beautiful. The point's really simple. 
For all the questions we might have, the point's really simple. Jesus returns and Jesus wins. Satan loses, the saints are resurrected and reign with Jesus, and Satan loses again because Jesus wins, period, end of story. That's the point. That's the point. That's what is there. But there, in that, there are key truths this points out. One of which is this passage highlights that Jesus is faithful to fulfill every last word of his covenant. Say, what do you mean? Well, when you go back to the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Abraham that Abraham, he'll take of Abraham, make a great nation, more numerous than the sand of the sea, that he'll give that nation a promised land that they will dwell in permanently. Well, that, the fullness of that promise hadn't been finished yet because the people of Abraham have never dwelled permanently in the promised land. You fast forward, D Jesus makes a covenant with David. David, I'm gonna take from your seed, from, from the, your lineage, I'm gonna make a king who will sit on your throne and there will be no end to his reign. Well, in one sense, that has happened. Jesus reigns, he sits at the right hand of, of God the Father. He, he already reigns, he's already won. But the promise to David was that, that that one would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. Well, we haven't seen that brought to full completion yet. Not only that, but when you go through, there are a variety of Old Testament prophecies that, that refer to the end of times. And it's interesting, I, I won't give you all of them even remotely today. We'll, we'll look at it in more detail on Wednesday night. But when you walk through those prophecies, th there are prophecies that indicate that there is a, a reign of Jesus on this earth, a reign of the Messiah on this earth at this Jerusalem that is distinct from the reign of the Messiah in the new heaven and new earth and new creation that we'll look at in a few weeks. Here's the point. God is faithful to fulfill every last word, every last T he's crossed, I he's dotted, semicolon he's placed, period he's pressed. He fulfills it all. Not one part of it is left unfulfilled. Not one part of it is left just teased in part. It is all fulfilled fully. And this is incredible, church family. Realize what this means for you and I today. Realize what it meant for those believers hearing this for the first time. You and I live today in a world of hostility. You and I live in a world today where there is temptation, where the enemy deceives. He can't deceive us and, and, and keep us in death, but he, he certainly throws temptation. He, he seeks to condemn us. We live in this world. We live in a world where we've been given a, a salvation where God has promised that he'll finish what he started in us. In this new covenant where he says, I know you're but dust. But my grace, my good favor that has never been based on your worth or ability to please me, my good favor, which is sheerly my goodness, my grace, that favor, it's enough for you. And my power, it's not perfected in your incredibleness, but in your weakness. On your worst of day, on your best of day, my power is perfected in your weakness. He promises us in salvation, there's never a time when I'm alone. I might feel alone, but he says I'm with you always. 
It says he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of sound mind. In, in his word, he's, he's given us uh, what it looks like to live the spirit-filled life as it transforms my, my ethics and my morality and, and my thoughts. There's so many things he has promised us in salvation that impact us right now. And when you and I come to a passage like this that highlights that God fulfills every word, understand church family, there is not a single thing he has promised in his new covenant by the blood of Jesus to do in our lives that he will fail a single part of. He's faithful. I can bank my life on his word. So the question is today, do I trust his word? And if I'm trusting his word, am I actually trusting it through an obedience in stepping out on it? Am I finding my security and my, my safety on his word or is my security towards God related more on the basis of my emotions? Or am I tossed back and forth by cultural twin, trends? Or is the way that I think, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart built more on worldly logic than it is on His Word? See, church family, am I informed more by God and His Word or by the news cycle and whatever pundit I happen to be listening to or reading? Church family, he is faithful to every word of his covenant. That's part of the point of the thousand-year reign of Jesus is he won't let anything, he won't get to the end and go, you know what, I know I said that, but, you know, in hindsight, we he is faithful to every last word. Amen. Do we trust him? One. Two. Not only that, but his victory is resoundingly complete. See, here's part of the implication. Listen, creation is important. God created the heavens and the earth before there was any sin involved. He created a, a supernatural realm, a spiritual realm. He created a physical realm. In the physical realm, he created you and I, alone of all of it, spiritual realm or physical realm. He created you and me in his image, both spirit and body. And what did he say? It is very good. You see, God's purpose is not just simply spiritual, which a lot of church history we've viewed, well, the spiritual is more important than the physical. No, they're both equally important to God. They're in harmony, especially as it comes to you and me as humans. They're so important that Jesus doesn't just come back, resurrect his saints, and go, all right, time to move on. Instead, Jesus comes back in the creation that was made by him, through him, and for him. He comes back and he reigns in this earth before the new heaven and the new earth. He reigns as he originally intended in Eden, where it's not just him reigning, but it's him reigning with his saints as instruments of his reign spreading throughout all the world. You see, because Jesus' victory is not just to come back and go, well, Satan, you kind of think you run the show on the world, so we'll just kick you out, we'll get rid of this world. No, Jesus goes, no, no, no. Satan, we're gonna kick you out and deal with you. 
I'm going to take back what's rightfully mine. And before moving on, we're going to fulfill what's rightfully mine the way it's supposed to be because my victory won't leave anything out. Jesus does not simply win. He wins back what is rightfully his. He fulfills his purpose for it. He works through human history to bring it to a glorious end where, where he uses his saints to exercise his rule. So here's my question. If his victory is this complete, what is our hope sitting on today? Is our hope sitting on his victory? Is my life marked by a supernatural hopefulness because I know the end of the story that whatever I suffer loss right now in this world, whatever friends isolate and alienate and attack me, whatever job or, or opportunity in school I lose because I want to stand where Jesus stands, whatever, whatever barbs are thrown my way on social media, whatever things I sacrifice because I won't affirm something, or, or maybe, maybe instead of living the, the Instagram life of travel and nonstop self-indulgence, I choose to employ my stewardship faithfully to Jesus and I give away that I don't, whatever it may be that I seemingly lose in this world for Jesus, his victory is so complete that in this world, he will vindicate me and I will gain it back tenfold. Is that where my hope is? You know, Peter makes this statement to a group of believers suffering terribly. He says, make it, he says, be prepared to give a defense for your hope. You cannot live in this world with true hope unless you know Jesus. And if we know Jesus, are we living with that hope shining through? Where because I have that hope, my life is not marked by a constant despair and cloud because of how stressful the world is. Now don't mistake me. I'm not addressing if there's major issues of of things that need to be worked through. I'm saying how many of us is it tempting to get up, turn on the news and go, oh yeah, it's not any better today than yesterday. Man, I guess I'll get up. Gosh, this is, or where's that hope that says, you know what, it's not better than yesterday. In fact, it might be a little bit worse. And my Jesus wins. And so I'm gonna walk out into this world not hating all the people who are seeking to attack me, but like Jesus, I'm gonna love those who persecute me and pray for my enemies. And like Jesus who on the cross says, not Father, strike them down, but forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because I'm marked by the hope of his victory. Because when I'm marked by the hope of his victory, when I'm discouraged, I'll go back to him and remember he's faithful to his every word. And as I remember and dwell and meditate on his word, I remember my hope that his victory is supreme, which means this. I realize that humanity apart from Christ is so depraved in our own sin that even seeing the exalted Jesus is not enough for some passage like this should alter and impact the way that I relate and think about the world. Here's what I mean, church family. It is truly a miracle 
that any one of us has come to faith in Christ. Most of us think, I think most of us, well, I'm not, I'm not, or surely if I saw Jesus standing in front of me, I would turn and repent. Well, apparently most, a lot of people will and they don't. What a miracle, I can't explain. What on earth would cause a five and a half year old boy to be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God first sought me out in, in the first place and, and when I responded as a five and a half year old boy who could do nothing for the kingdom of God other than just be a five and a half year old boy adopted as a son, he delighted to save me. What a miracle, what a wonder. Does it cause me to be marvel at his salvation? Does it cause me to be wise as it relates to this world, when I understand that when it comes to this world, the, the things of the world, the system of the world, there is no neutrality in the world. The world is not neutral to Jesus. The world is hostile to Jesus. Does it change then how I relate to those in the world? Does it, is there a brokenness in my heart that there are those in this world who rage when there is a Jesus who loves them and died for them? Does it break my heart? Does it inform my mission? Church family, we have been given the responsibility to demonstrate through our lives and to proclaim with our mouth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our job is not to convert. If people see Jesus face to face in all his glory and won't convert, don't think you're somehow gonna do better than that. I can't convert a person. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. My job is to be faithful, to live it out, and to proclaim it, to put words on it so that they know I'm not just a nice person. I have been transformed by the blood of Jesus who loves them too. That is our mission, church family. We must be faithful to live and preach the truth in love and grace with hope in a dark and dying world. But is that our mission? Is that the mission we live? Or is the mission we live the exclusive furtherance of our career, of our extracurriculars, the having as many friends, affirmation? Listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things when they're in the right place. But understand, church family, the day Jesus saved each one of us, our mission changed from making the most of us to making the most of him. Why? Because we now have hope. He comes back. He wins. Satan loses. The saints are resurrected. We reign with him. Satan tries again. He loses because Jesus wins because Jesus won. And he is faithful to his every word. So we respond today by taking him at his word and trusting him. Woo! That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, you reign. I, it's hard even to say just that you win because the truth is it's not that you win future. You've already won. What happens in the future is you will bring your victory to bear upon all of this world and none will be able to wiggle out of it. So Jesus, we praise you today that your word is good. Your word is good to the one who's lost and does not know you here in this room or watching online, that if they would come to you in faith, you who've taken their place and paid their price, 
you would delight to save them in your grace. And you will hold them and you will work out your salvation on their best of days and on their worst of days and on their ugliest of days. That Jesus, any one of us in you who's already been bought and paid for by your blood, your word is good and we can trust you at your word. We can bank our lives on what your word says about who you are, about who we are in you, about what you call us to be about. That, Father, we don't have to allow the news cycle of the day to determine the sparkle of hope in our eye, but our hope is secure because you return and you win. So, Lord, in light of that knowledge, may we be about your work and mission. Jesus, you know how you're moving, Holy Spirit. You know how you'd stir our hearts. Jesus, be praised in spirit. May we follow your leadership. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.